high-performance computing and AI is being used to positively transform society and mitigate climate change. KO Data's 100% renewably powered data centers support the mission-critical workloads of life sciences, biotech and AI startups in Cambridge. Find out how we can reduce your digital carbon footprint at kodata.com slash contact. KO Data, proud to sponsor the Cambridge Tech Podcast. Welcome to the Cambridge Tech Podcast, talking all things technology from the heart of the UK's tech capital. Here are your hosts, Faye Holland and James Parton. Hi, I'm Faye. And I'm James. This episode is going to be a little bit different to the norm in that we're going to be talking tech in the national context with Gerard Grech. Over the last decade, Gerard has led the public sector focus around tech and startups in the UK, first as the CEO of Tech City and then Tech Nation. It's going to be fascinating to hear from the man at the head of all that progress over the last 10 years. Gerard, thanks so much for taking the time today. Very much appreciated. Why don't we get started by getting to know a little bit more about you and your background and your experiences? Sure. I mean, I'll be... Thank you so much for having me, first and foremost. Um, Really enjoy your podcast. And yeah, so my origins are quite sort of varied. Uh, Engineering degree, and then went into the music business, uh, became an artist manager, and then became a music journalist. And then after doing my MBA, I sort of went into digital media product development specifically, working for a company called Orange, which some of your listeners may know, which is a telecoms business. But I became head of music and video, really sort of developing new products and services around entertainment and media over mobile. And then that, that took me to actually to Paris, then went over to Nokia in New York uh, in the apps business and running their App Store at the time, which was competing with a, a big, a big company called Apple at the time. So it was fun, fun. It was fun times for sure. And <laughs> but uh, and then obviously went into Nokia at Nokia Ventures, a little bit of a uh, little bit of time in venture capital before taking a more public facing role as tech, uh, the CEO of Tech City, which then became Tech Nation more recently, and sort of the focus of both those organizations has been very much about shining a light on what on accelerating the growth of an ecosystem here in the UK which was kind of started in London to some extent although other parts of the country were very much developed but the you know the the UK has now become one of the most productive ecosystems in the UK and I think we had a I hope to say a small part to play in making that happen yeah, no, absolutely. And we're going to dive into a lot of that. Before we do, though, even though we are the T- Cambridge Tech Podcast, I've got to go back and ask you about the music uh, yeah. experience. How, what Did you work with any up-and-coming bands that went on to become a big deal? Well, I, I, I sort of did a short stint working at a music promotion company in Notting Hill back in London. And then I, I started my own business uh, as a founder and and really sort of trying to do my best to to develop artists and and to some extent you know it's i i've been lucky enough through my time 
to work with uh, founders very closely and still do actually in terms of advice right now and giving advice to them. But you know, founders are very creative. They 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 create a lot of value, and it's the same it's the same principle as as, as music artists. You know, they are they are very creative in their own way and they see the world in a, in a very different light to perhaps the rest of society. And I think I've always really enjoyed spending time with brilliant minds like that. So I, I was very attracted from an early age really to, to, to work with people who were, who were in that regard kind of creative. Um, so yeah, it's uh, you just never can predict what might happen in your life. I think. <laughs> And, and so, so my ears pricked up, and actually, I'm like, no, let's forget the tech podcast today because <laughs> I did a music degree. So whenever, whenever anyone says anything about music, I'm like, right, let's just talk about that then. But I agree with you. Actually, I think that you know, either doing solo performances or you're working in a in an orchestra, you know, you're playing in an orchestra, you learn such a range of different skills that are then super transferable um, when you get into a more entrepreneurial space, aren't they? For sure, for sure. And I think I, you know, when it came to choosing my first degree at university, I sort of struggled as to which 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 way I would go. And obviously times are very different now, but I, in the end, I actually did acoustic engineering. So it was t- kind of taking the, the best of mathematics and science combined with the more sort of artistic side of acoustics. And so, although it did end up being sort of mostly physics and maths, but anyway, but <laughs> I was trying to find a way through to kind of be more balanced about what, what the future might hold at the time. Okay, so I think we should probably go back to talking tech. So let's let's talk about Tech City if we can. So so what was the, what was the origins of Tech City, and what you know what were the objectives of it? Yeah, so Tech City was an initiative that started out of government and was really sort of launched by the then Prime Minister David Cameron, and his his drive and vision was to make East London a place called Shoreditch, actually, to be specific, into a sort of a, a, a global tech hub, you know, in the top five globally. And actually, a lot of people at the time, if you look at the press at the time, people scoffed at the idea that that East London and Shoreditch could ever take on Silicon Valley and, and other places around the world, which at the time were sort of New York and Tel Aviv and Israel and and Bangalore and India and other places and 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 so so it began as a as an initiative within government to shine a light on what was going on which was very exciting at the time there were sort of a lot of software businesses um, there were probably about two hundred at the time and they were in various places in Shoreditch and they were growing very quickly clearly you know this was post financial crisis. And they were looking for cheap rent and and cheap office space, which they found in Shoreditch. And clearly, the government wanted to shine a light on it and really wanted to sort of accelerate the growth of it. And so, the role of Tech City was to sort of act as a convening player in bringing entrepreneurs closer to government and government closer to entrepreneurs to help shape policy, to drive the growth of the digital economy, which at the time was probably less than 10%. It's now much, much greater than that. So that was the initial origins of Tech City. I mean, Jared, I think, you know, we probably first met back in those days um, when I was at places like Twilio. Um, and, and you're right. I mean, being there at the time, there really was that excitement and that sense of kind of 
being at the beginning of something really exciting. And it's interesting you kind of used the word scoffed there because I think I think it's fair to say that prior to Tech City, there just wasn't that kind of ability to self-promote or, or people try to avoid self-promotion of what was happening there. But, you know, as, as you well know, that that's so important in terms of attracting investment and building something that uh, has, a, has an identity and can actually start to report back to government on its impact and job creation and, and, and wealth creation, all the other things, innovation, obviously. I mean, what do you think that was just a really special time that it was a kind of unique time and it would be hard to kind of repeat that again? Um, and maybe the second part of that question is, you know, what's your view of London in particular now? Because to me, it seems like, you know, now shortage has been gentrified to some degree. It, it's much more dispersed now. You don't have such a kind of clustering of, of early stage startups as you, as you had back then. I think it was definitely a, a moment in time where many, many stars aligned, I would say. And obviously, government at the time was looking at initiatives that could just focus on growth. I, I remember, I, I remember because I was at New York at the time and I was thinking, I was sort of engaging quite a bit with various sort of political advisors who were very just focused on how do we just accelerate growth when the the economy in the UK, alongside many other European economies, as well as around the world, were really struggling post the financial crisis. I think there was a definite need and necessity to align many constituents to generate momentum. And I think that's really what happened. There was just, you know, investors were looking at ways in which to sort of drive uh, investments into more high risk assets, because interest rates were sort of one or two percent at most so so many stars aligned and i think there was a sort of a, a confluence of many things coming together to make it happen but there was a lot of willpower as well there was a lot of political will to make this happen and that always helps so you've got sort of political will coming from the top down as well as sort of more ground up excitement and focus which which made something very special happen Again, kind of just looking back in terms of the history side of things, but also, you know, just as an educational piece, how important was the kind of investment from some of the US tech firms into London at that stage? Because I think, you know, prior to Tech City, um, Ireland was quite successful in terms of attracting high tech US companies. Uh, but then you had things like Google Campus in Bonhill Street. You had Facebook opening up offices, Google opening up offices, etc. You know, was, was the role of US tech in investing into London a key part of that story? I think there were many. I mean, obviously, there were many players uh, involved in the making of of, of what became you know, very successful as Tech City. But I would say that Google Campus was one in particular that was extremely, I think, very pivotal, not least because you had a lot of people coming from all over the uh, all over Europe and continental Europe, I guess you could say now. And they would literally show up with their bags and their sort of luggage and say, I hear this is a great place to get going in the tech industry. And that is something, I mean, that's something that you kind of read or hear about from the 1930s when people are arriving in New York. So, so there was a sort of a real welcoming, I would say, time, and it still is now, but I guess it's different. It's just that they knew that there would be this place that where they would be welcomed. That was one, I think, I think the opening of other offices, well, that was partly the initiative behind Tech City was to sort of, be sort of a, a, a player in, in helping to bring inward investment. 
right? And so, uh, but I think Google Campus was it was approached slightly differently. The whole notion of it was to be much more than just a co-working space, but a place where there was constant a constant string of events taking place and people just wanting to find out how to get going in the tech industry. And it was extremely welcoming and it was open to anybody. And I think that in itself, it was extremely inclusive uh, in so many ways, which, 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 which was what drives, I think, you know, the, the best of outliers in, in, in outcomes. So there was lots of things going on. Obviously, there was the press and then there was the government, you know, including Tech City in their speeches. Ministers were including Tech City in their speeches. There was obviously the international outposts as part of the Department of International Trade, which was promoting heavily the notion of Tech City being a cluster of innovation. But also, I think what it did do in the right way was to sort of focus on other parts of the UK, which were just as thriving. So you had, obviously, Cambridge has always been a, a huge cluster of innovation and, and, and science and technology. But you also had that going on in West London to, you know, on the M4, where you have lots of big companies as well. And I remember when our, our first Tech Nation report came out, it really showed that there was quite a thriving economy in 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 between London and Bristol along that M4 corridor. So look, lots of things happened at the right time, which went on to what we did as Tech Nation. I think, Gerard, that's a, exactly the segue that we need now, isn't it? So great impetus around Tech City and then Tech Nation. You know, there are all of these other clusters and these other opportunities. So how did how did Tech Nation then come about? Everyone just went, crikey, we've done this for London. Let's 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 spread the love everywhere else. How did it come about? You know, was it an ambition to to just scale the UK or was it something else? I think within within a few weeks of joining as the chief executive, I was very aware of the fact that there are many other tech clusters around the UK. And I think what I was, you know, immediately I went up to Manchester and started visiting lots of other places outside London to see whether we can connect the dots and actually make this a lot, a lot bigger at the time. And so we published the Tech Nation, the first Tech Nation report in 2015, which basically shone a light on the various clusters around the UK, which I think was over 20 at the time. And then we sort of used data analysis to showcase what exactly these clusters were known for. So we just started that journey of just raising the bar and making people aware of like, if you were to think of Manchester, what would you think of them as? So there were specialisms in e-commerce, there was specialism in health tech. There was lots of different specialisms that were coming about. Like I remember Liverpool's very strong in gaming and gaming software. And suddenly there was almost like a new taxonomy to how you could perhaps look at the country in terms of where these specialisms were at, just so that people were more informed about what was available and what was around in various clusters. So then we started doing events in various places. But I think the one political event that really sort of changed the number of the, a, a significant part of this was Brexit in 2016. I think that was a sort of a point of obviously reflection, but obviously a, there was a sort of a need for an inflection point to really make sure that we were not then losing ground as a result of a big political event that 
perhaps in some people's eyes was seen as a step back. So we quickly put together a very sort of strong, constructive proposal to say, you know, let's just fuel the growth of clusters around the UK and really build as much as possible a national inclusive ecosystem that shone a light on on as many things that were going on. More specifically on businesses, though, scaling businesses, because I think we were closely reaching a point of, of uh, you know, a lot of talk about startups, but perhaps not enough about scale-ups, which I'm sure we'll talk about later on in the podcast. But overall, that was the impetus, one of the impetuses, and there's a lot of momentum, which we then sort of, we then switched the gears and said, look, let's specialize in being known for sectors and let's specialize in, in creating a very inclusive ecosystem around the UK. And, you know, I think the inclusive bits, you know, very important, but I, I just, I, in my head, I'm just thinking now, is it a case of, you know, we talk about leveling up, you know, did were you trying to create almost a level level playing field, or do you think that we should be doubling down on certain areas um, for for different clusters? You know, it's a it's a really difficult question to answer, but I'm interested to know what you think. It's a very good question. I think what we tried to do, I mean, I should perhaps explain to your audience that of what Tech Nation then became, because uh, it's quite sometimes, yeah, I always find that people have various views on on what Tech Nation did. But we, just for the benefit of your listeners, we, we ran programs. So I immediately switched to running programs specifically for entrepreneurs. And so in the end, we actually delivered 48 growth programs at various business stage. So Super Seed, Pre-Series A, Series B and, and C. And then we also did sector-specific programs, so artificial intelligence, fintech, cyber, net zero, that sort of thing. We also run and still run a visa scheme for founders uh, so that it attracts the best and brightest talent who want to work in tech in the UK. We also r- run a digital business academy, uh, which we actually did. We launched at Cambridge University Judge Business School and UCL. We also uh, run panels, advisory panels with various government departments. So quite a number of things that are all to do with just accelerating the growth of an ecosystem. Now, to your point, to your question, at the time, I seem to remember in 2015, you know, fewer than 15% of the companies that were in our kind of sphere, I would say, were outside London. By 2023, you know, over 59% of the companies we were working with were outside London. And then the second stat that I always like to share is that even at the time, I think fewer than 12% of the companies we were working with back in 2015 were had a female co-founder. And actually by the, you know, by in 2023, you know, over 40% had a female co-founder. And so just to put this into context, we, by the end of March of 2023, we'd we'd kind of accelerated 1,300 companies and including a third of them being unicorns that have ever been created. So a third of all tech unicorns ever created in UK tech history had gone through one of our programs. So, and, and at the time, back in 2015, I think four places in the UK had a tech unicorn or more. 
And now in 2023, over 20 places have a tech unicorn or more. So just to the point of leveling up. And I think when you do this comparative analysis with other European countries, that is three times what is our nearest counterpart, which is Germany, where they have about seven cities. And actually, France has three, I think, now, just about three. So I think I think these are sort of the, the change that we've seen over the last sort of 10 years, I would say, that I think Tech Nation has played a part and a role in. in, in, lev- in you know, leveling up is obviously a, a well-used word in British politics, but I think it's just making sure that the distribution of digital wealth is is as as a as across the country as much as possible because what was important to do and note is to make sure that entrepreneurs become role models for local populations to look up to rather than need of going to London or Paris or, or Silicon Valley. There's the kind of lazy comparison with the UK trying to replicate Silicon Valley all the time, right? Which is a fairly geographically constrained area of the US, certainly in in the scale of the US combined. So based on what you've just said about, you know, innovation being distributed across the whole of the UK, is that unrealistic for the UK to achieve? Well, I think I think I think there's a lot to be said about clusters and the efficiencies of clusters. I think though there you also have to make sure that the conditions are right for organic innovation to grow and 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 the more inclusive it is to some extent the more the pro- the higher the probability of an outcome that is much bigger than the normal so i think how do you create those conditions where you you're doubling down on on clusters as well as making sure that the rest of the country has access to opportunities skills support because you'll always get an outlier and you have to sort of how do you create that in a programmatic way to allow anybody who's got the drive and the vision to come through and not be um and not be enabled to 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 be the out you know the outlier so i think i think it's it's always a balance i would say and and i think when i was one of the co-authors of the fintech review the Khalifa fintech review we found out that places which had three or more universities in the center of the city had a higher probability of creating a tech unicorn in fintech so there are certain things that you need to get right and there are certain things where if if you don't have a university but you have a college of further education then how do you make sure that the conditions for those people in that college have access to the skills and support because you'll always get ambitious people you know Ambitious people are everywhere. The access to opportunities is not. So how do you make that happen? Yeah, and I guess one I mean, one of the downsides of being in a tech cluster like Cambridge, which we certainly have started to talk more about on our podcast, is, you know, the the high, the unusually high concentration of well-paid jobs creates um, a wealth gap issue, right? For the local economy, housing prices are, uh, you know, get escalated artificially. Um, it, it, it does, there is a kind of downside to that. So I think what you're saying there about a wider distribution across the country, rather than having one, say, super cluster is probably a good thing. Well, it, it, it depends heavily on the political willpower of, of the local people and, and what they want to see and how much sort of, I think in what I see from what I know and what I can see in Cambridge, there's a lot of work going on in making sure that the various constituents that make up an ecosystem are talking to each other, exchanging views and sort of doing proper planning rather than it being sort of a little bit random. 
that can happen. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that. But I think proper forecasting of what the needs of the city are because of the growth sector, especially in life sciences, and especially in Cambridge, then I think there's just so much more constructive conversations that are being had and than ever before. And I think that's very positive. You're correct. We certainly have a lot of initiatives. You know, Andy Neely's been on the podcast talking about that relationship between the academic community and the the you know the rest of the community. Um, so, so I think there's there's definitely a desire in Cambridge to make it work for everyone. But I don't think anyone would say it's an it's it's an easy job. And I know in a in a few weeks' time we'll be having the Innovate Cambridge team on talking about their ideas as well. Um, so if I can, I'm going to bring us back to Tech Nation because actually I'm interested to know there's so many, it's specifically in Cambridge, but all over the place, there's accelerators, there's mentor programs, there's loads of different ways that entrepreneurs can get help and advice and, and, and connections. So how did the team at Tech Nation come up with the different programs of activities that are there and you mentioned scaling up earlier on as well you know how much of the balance was to support scale-ups as well as the you know the real startups that's a very good question i think we were at web summit in 2014 when we sort of started to find out that actually there were not enough scaling programs there was a lot of accelerator programs at the very early stage you know sort of pre-seed and seed and i think the business model really stacks up when you look at it that you know, for eight percent or anything between five and ten percent equity, you get an amount of money, and that business model actually worked. But actually, when you know, for later stage, which you know, and eighty percent of companies worldwide tend to fail when they come between two to five years. And that two to five years, we call it the chasm. It's probably a very familiar term with your audience, and and so we said, actually, what is there to do to to, to make sure that you had a good a good bridge for success? And so that's what it came about, actually. So it, we said, right, let's look at this. And then that kind of spurred the growth of more sort of supersede and later stage programs. And and what we then started doing is making sure that, you know, so if you take a company like Monzo, I think Monzo went through two of our, or maybe even three of our programs. So what you had was this sort of pathway to success Rather, you know, rather than just having a one-off program, you had a program that continued your supporting your growth through the next stage and the next stage and the next stage, so that your path of success is as smooth as possible. And the intention was always to make sure that they went from obviously seed to IPO. I mean, that's you know whether there are enough IPOs. That's you know that's another argument, but that's that's where it came from. Let's talk about GrowthWorks. It's the fully funded program that's supporting the leaders of ambitious growth businesses to scale and double their profits and productivity. If you're looking to take your business to the next step, GrowthWorks will support you to plan bigger, scale faster, and stay ahead of the game so you can deliver on both your financial and market share targets. Exclusively for businesses across Cambridgeshire and Peterborough, GrowthWorks is here to help you. Get started and arrange a call with them on www.growthworks.uk. Thinking then about your role as the CEO of the organisation, so 
talk us through the scaling of ambition of the organization itself because you went from a you know a london centric organization to a national organization so you obviously had to lead a significant change there so how did you approach that you know from a you know from a a hiring perspective and building the culture inside Tech Nation because I've got to be honest, every Tech Nation person I ever met was so enthusiastic and passionate. You know, I would love to get your kind of insights in in terms of how you built that team. That's very kind, James. I think it was such. I mean, it was such a team effort. You, you always look back and say, "Well, we 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 did it by design," but actually, it was just we went by what we were seeing and witnessing and and so even the way that we structured the programs is all market feedback led it was all market led and and sort of making sure that you know so culture was a big part of the team and even the way in which we hired uh, we we put a lot of effort into building the right culture from day one and we learned as we went along so that's probably the biggest part i would say is is not just the hiring, but the culture that we built and making sure that we were, we did, you know, we did things like retros. Uh, so every time we did an event or a launch of something, we would then quickly just, you know, come in as a team and say, okay, what worked well, what didn't. So there were, there were all these little small things that you do. And, and, you know, there was also no ego to some extent because it's just like, you know, what can we do to do better? and to make that event better next time and nothing no you know nothing was holding people back from you know speaking up and so those are sort of small things that that really played a part i would say and also just just the autonomy for people to get on with what they needed to do and that is really important i think it's uh you know you sort of set the framework and you set the okrs you know the objective key results and you say this is what we're looking to achieve by the end of the year and and then we'll break it down by team break it down by objective and then everyone was hopefully by the end clear as to what they needed to do but yeah i would say it's been it's been one of the greatest privileges of my life to work with such an amazing team and did you regularly bring everyone together you know was there you know like in a startup you might have a kind of you know an annual kickoff or something like that uh, or regular kind of town hall style meetings were you bringing everyone together to get that common shared sense of kind of vision and purpose yeah we we would have our monthly all hands clearly we would have our monthly detoxes which were sort of you know put your laptops well you couldn't really put your laptops away because we'd have a zoom call with <laughs> <laughs> uh, we would have a zoom call with someone coming out you know coming in externally and talking about growth and change and change management that was always very good uh, we would also when we did our technician reports we would go on the road so we would I guess you could now say you could, we swapped our laptops, you know, we swapped our guitars for our laptops and just went off and just basically did the tour and trying to make sure that people were very empathetic to what was going on around the country and not necessarily being in their own bubble, which, which you know, it all happens to all of us, right? Uh, physically, we tend to be get very comfortable. So it's kind of anything that sort of pushed the boundaries for people. And then obviously when COVID hit, we went fully remote. But even after that, we stayed as a fully remote business, but we would bring the company together every three months and and either in Manchester or in Bristol or in London or anywhere, just making sure that we had outside speakers and 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 just we had a cadence in which we had 
where the company would come together. Clearly, things like Slack and and other tools that we had would would work well. Uh, nothing would replace that sort of person to person engagement on a regular basis. I think the other thing that always impressed me um, was your use of data and evidence. You know, I think certainly the big learning for my startup years was being very data driven. So, you know, to see you adopt very similar methods, I think, showed that kind of natural alignment with your, I guess, customer base. I mean, clearly as a public funded body, there's always that burden of evidence that's required. But, you know, I think you guys went over and above maybe where that kind of benchmark was typically set. So talk to us about that. You know, what was your approach to data and um, and the kind of insights, the reports you've touched on? It'd be great to understand the kind of uh, the philosophy behind the data-driven side of things. Yeah, it started from a very early point in the company's history. And I would say we were obsessive a bit with it, to be honest with you. Uh, we, we not only... I mean, obviously, internally, we were constantly sort of working out how, how to be better. And you know, this is obviously something that gets said quite a lot. If, it, if you can't measure it, it, can't, it doesn't matter. Or something along those lines. I can't remember the exact word or line, but it, we were obsessed with it. And then obviously, that kind of manifests itself externally. So even from the early days uh, as a company, we were obsessive with all the numbers and key performance indicators of everything. But then we sort of translated that into the report that the, the first report that we, that came out was full of data. I think it had over a thousand data points, if not more. I think by the end we had 13,000 data points about the UK digital, the UK's digital economy. And I think that just speaks to the team. We built that culture of being data-driven, which then manifested itself into people joining the company and just saying, okay, I bring this type of uh, competence and how do I apply this competence within this culture? I just look back and I uh, I was so in admiration of the team and how they took ideas and then shaped them along the way and made them what they are. So yeah, so we we ended up producing over I think so far ninety reports in total. I think so because ultimately data is what drives insight and what drives decisions at at all levels of seniority. So. I didn't want it to be based on our own opinions. And what we tried to do was combine hard facts coming from external parties with survey data that was representative of the people that we we worked with. So that combination was very helpful. And then, you know, George Windsor, Dr. George Windsor, who's our head of insights, has just been brilliant at just tell, you know, telling stories out of the data and, and now has joined Notion. But um, yeah, team effort. And I, I guess that the last report you put together a little earlier on this year was maybe a little bittersweet because you're celebrating all the achievements of 10 years, but obviously it's the end of the era for Tech Nation as it, as it had been. That's right. So end of an impactful chapter in the sense that you, know, you look back at over the last 10 years and what's happened now, the UK's third in the world for technology investment and and the actual ecosystem has grown 16 times in value over the last 10 years that we were in existence or were are in existence and and you know reaching a trillion dollar valuation and being Europe's most productive ecosystem i think what we tried to do with with the one which actually has been very valuable i think the one that we released in in march april this year which was looking actually looking ahead being forward looking so we predict 
that the value of the UK's ecosystem would be worth $4 trillion in 2033 if certain things happen. So whilst we were looking back and seeing what had happened and what had come forth, we were very much forward-looking as always and optimistic as always. <laughs> A lot of things to be proud about there have achieved and keep keeping the pressure on, which kind of leads me on to the Founders Forum who've picked up some of the legacy assets, I suppose. And are you going to be staying on there as an advisor? So actually, uh, Founders Forum has fully acquired the entity. So we're really proud of that moment where they have acquired the entity as a whole and all of the programs and and everything within it so to speak so it's a it's a straightforward acquisition actually and some people have been able to move across from technation to founders forum and i am really acting as an advisor to the ceo carolyn uh, who heads up founders forum group and actually you know wait and see there's more to, that, yeah there's there's more to be shared in the coming weeks and months ahead Oh, that's great. Exciting to know. Um, so London Tech Week, you've just had, um, well, early uh, before summer, you had London Tech Week on. Did you know we had a Cambridge Tech Week? Yes, I did. Yes. So we, uh, you know, the inaugural event was in May here, um, which, you know, it's, it's a long way off the scale of London Tech Week. But I'm just interested to know whether there were any key highlights for you from London Tech Week this year. Oh, from London Tech Week. I think it was yet again one of the best, I would say. I think there's so much even more momentum behind tech generally in the UK. And it was just great to see the Prime Minister obviously giving a very sort of constructive speech and and also the focus of the government. And also there's a lot of talk about AI and the importance of AI. And But as much as that was going on, there was a lot of, also a lot of focus on sustainability and, and net zero. And I think the UK... When you look at the data on a pro rata basis, and even just as a whole, the UK seems to punch way above its weight when it comes to sustainability and net zero investment in technology. So there was quite a strong point about that. And then there was another point about the future of work. But but at the same time, it was great to see the uh, Cambridge, uh, you know, the first one and, uh, and being so successful. I think there's so much that Cambridge, you know, not only shares with itself within Cambridge, there's so much that I think you know, clusters around the world could learn so much from Cambridge, given the fact that it's third in the world as a science and technology cluster, I believe, after Silicon Valley and Boston. So, you know, I think I think that I'm looking forward to many more, and I'm sure you are too. <laughs> That's a perfect segue. I mean, because, you know, as, as the Cambridge Tech Podcast, we're kind of obligated to ask you a little bit about Cambridge. What's been your impression of Cambridge over the years? I mean, I, and I'll give you mine because prior to taking the role at the Bradfield Centre, I spent very little time in Cambridge, despite how, you know, vibrant the tech cluster was. It always felt quite opaque for someone on the outside of Cambridge. Um, that, that view, I think, has changed since I've been inside the city. And there's a lot of programs now to improve the accessibility into, into the Cambridge cluster. But what, what's your take on Cambridge? And how has that changed over the years? It's always been a very strong science and technology cluster. And you know, the stats speak for themselves, right? So I think there are 23 unicorns already created, which I think makes it the science capital of Europe, if if not one in the world. And so a lot has developed over time. And now I would say there's a lot more that can be unlocked if the stars continue to align that I'm seeing. So I think with the Innovate Cambridge initiative, I think making sure that all the right constituents are speaking to each other 
and unleashing all that value. But also, I think we're entering a new time. I think the last 10 years have been quite significantly different in the sense that we needed to make sure that there were a lot more scale-ups in the, in the system across the UK. But I think now we're entering a time when I think the role of universities, especially ones which are very strong in science and technology, in helping to create scientific breakthroughs that will help provide solutions to some of our challenges, which are a lot more complicated and complex in nature. And I'm talking about you know, climate change, or I've come across a, a recent company from Cambridge, I think Zampla, which is looking to replace plastic uh, with a much more of a plant-based material. I think that's so exciting and just so inspiring. Um, I'm, and I'm, not, I'm not sort of belittling other stuff like apps or anything like that, but just, you know, obviously there's many things that make our lives very convenient. But I think we are now entering a different time where I think we need to focus a lot more energy, put a lot more money behind such inventions. And I think Cambridge University is such a hotbed of innovation in that regard. So uh, I think the next 10 years will be very exciting for Cambridge and the university. I think that's a great point to finish on. And it, it reminds me of the conversation we had with Tim Minchell at the Institute for Manufacturing. And he kind of challenged everyone in Cambridge to say, do something, create something that has societal global impact. And I think that absolutely resonates with what you've just said. Not least because obviously our, our societal challenges are becoming a lot more complex. I think Cambridge University has that in spades in terms of you know, creating impact on our, on our global scale. Well, Gerard, I mean, thanks so much for sparing the time. It's been a really interesting conversation, you know, not only looking back, but looking forward to some really interesting opportunities that the UK has, uh, has got ahead of it. And, um, you know, just reminiscing there, the Bradfield Centre owes a gratitude of debt to things like Google Campus, right? Because a lot of the blueprint of that of that kind of community was adopted here in Cambridge with the Bradfield. So we're trying to keep the torch alight. <laughs> I mean, more than a light, I think you're doing a brilliant job over there and in, 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 in being such an inspiring beacon for people coming in and entering this new world of technology. And so you're obviously such an inspiration to many people. And, and that, that's the way we see things and continue to see things at Technation. You just don't know what impact you're having. You know, you're sort of doing your day job, so to speak. But I think it's fantastic to see that at the Bradfield Centre and other places around Cambridge and other parts of the UK. As I said, I'm really, really bullish on the UK and in the, and the next 10 years. And James, so everyone's welcome to come with their luggage and guitars, right? I would actually love nothing more than that, to be honest, <laughs> as you well know. Yeah, that would be awesome. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, thanks so much, Gerard, and, and speak to you soon. Terrific. Thank you so much for having me and look forward to being in touch. And now this week's Cambridge Tech News, which starts with a huge news story that Abcam has been acquired by the Danaher Corporation for 5.7 billion US dollars. Anyone who's been following will know that they have been very much in the news over recent months for a variety of reasons. This acquisition will really cement them as a key enabler of life science research globally. Um, I did reach out to Alan Herzl, the CEO, for comment, but as you'd expect, he's a little bit busy this week. But if you do want more detail on the story, then we would recommend you check out businessweekly.co.uk, who are covering the story in full. In other news, a Cambridge Radar technology trailblazer is poised to claim a foothold in a $128 billion global market for automated drone services. 
Cambridge Sensoris are currently fundraising and they're set to showcase a new product launch and some key strategic partnerships at Europe's largest business event dedicated to the UAV industry. It's called Drone X Trade Show and Conference. So those of you in that space, I'm sure we'll be heading over to the Excel Centre in London in September. Cambridge Sensoris are a really interesting company, definitely trailblazing, and they were also one of our 21 to watches this year, the top 21 2023. And we'll come on to a bit more news about that in a moment. Data visualization specialist Cambridge Intelligence has appointed a new CEO and has reshaped its leadership team to support a fresh phase of its growth. They were founded by Joe Perry and they've launched a new generation of flexible, lightweight and user-friendly connected data visualisation tools for the law enforcement and intelligence sector. The new CEO is Brian Amsbury, who has been a member of the top team since 2017 and is a veteran of the enterprise software industry around the world. In other news, 21 to Watch has launched for the 2024 cohort. We take nominations all year round for that competition and we've already got nominees like Signaloid, Bravely Cultured, Supersense Technologies, so some names that you possibly haven't heard of yet. In the official press release, there were three different people, company things featured. The person was Mark Golab, a PhD candidate who's founded a company called Cambridge Surgical Models, which focuses on manufacturing a new generation of artificial anatomical models for surgical training. The company was someone that we know on the podcast, Opto Biosystems. They were on episode 41. They're going great guns. Everything that Ben sat there talking to us about, they're starting to do. So it wouldn't surprise me to see them rising up the list over the coming months. And our thing uh, was the innovative memory technology being created by a company called Blue Shift Memory. They've really made some significant advances since appearing on the long list back in 2020. So I think we've got some great companies to start watching there. The East of England's video game development talent pool is growing, according to new research published by Tiger, the trade association representing the games industry. The report demonstrates the games industry talent is dispersed across diverse regions throughout the country, with the sector contributing strongly to the UK's levelling up agenda. Almost 80% of those working in the UK games industry are not based in London. In the period from December 2021 to April 2023, the headcount of staff working in video games in the east of England grew by some 18.7% and the region accounts for 6.7% of the UK's games development workforce in total, the equivalent of 1,622 people. And Cambridge is a key hub for gaming with major players such as Playfusion, Ninja Theory, Jagex, Frontier Developments. Um, David Braben actually commented on this report saying that Cambridge is a great place for video games development and has been for the last 40 years. There's a mature games development community here with Frontier and Jagex and many others. But not only that, there are many great tech companies here too and many of their tech skills are transferable to video games, um, which is something that we say quite often on the podcast too about transferability of skills. And that's this week's news. Today's show was produced by Carl Homer of Cambridge TV and supported by our media partner, Business Weekly. The Cambridge Tech Podcast is available on all major podcast platforms and on cambridgetechpodcast.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please give it a five-star review. 
it will really help others discover the show. 